BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wowerever you get your podcasts. The Bowery Boys, Episode 388, The Hudson River School. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers with the third and final part of our road trip to the Hudson Valley. Now, we started on the Old Croton Aqueduct Trail for part one, then headed up to Hyde Park to discuss the Roosevelts in part two. So we've gone from engineering marvels to presidential libraries. And now on today's show, we're going to get artsy <laughs> with the story of one of America's first major artistic movements known as the Hudson River School. A specific style of landscape paintings that began to appear in the 1820s on canvases produced by the painter Thomas Cole. Now Cole, and then later fellow Hudson River School painters, would paint Gorgeous views of natural settings found just north of the city along the Hudson River Valley. They painted the valley's hills, forests, rocky formations and mountains, and of course the Hudson River itself, with drama, vivid colors, and very often minute precision. Like microscopic precision. It's amazing. And, and although it is called the Hudson River School, they painted natural settings across the continent, really, and, and actually around the world. Although many of them would often come back to painting the Hudson River Valley itself. And that's because most of the members of this artistic fraternity lived in New York City, and many would, in time, also buy and construct homes along the Hudson River. And so today we'll be heading up to the towns of Catskill and Hudson, New York, to visit two of these homes. Yes, we will first be visiting the home of the man who started it all, Thomas Cole, in the village of Catskill on the river's western shore. And then we'll cross the Hudson to visit Olana, Frederick Church's masterpiece. And both of these historic sites are open year-round to visitors. But first, before we hit the road here, why don't we pull back a little bit and really discuss the origins of Hudson River School painting? Well, I think we need to clarify something immediately. There wasn't a real school. There wasn't a school building here, Greg. This, this was more of an art movement. Sort of a scene, a mood, a vibe. 
<laughs> yes. And the group didn't really call itself anything special at the time that they were painting. I mean, the whole term Hudson River School actually came later to describe this group of painters who, who became prominent in the 1850s. And initially, when it was used, it was used as kind of a put-down. Wow. So talk about reclaiming an insult here, right? <laughs> totally. I wanted to start the story in 1824, when a hotel named the Catskill Mountain House opened about 100 miles north of the city in the Catskill Mountains, in a spot called the Catterskill Cove. It's, it's perched way up in the mountains with incredible vistas of the Catskills on one side and lakes on the other. And this was a notable moment for tourism because here we had a fancy mountain retreat. And Catterskill, by the way, is the word where we get Catskill from. Right. And that was right before the Erie Canal opened, and New York's economy would soon experience incredible growth. And of course, so much nature would quickly start disappearing. Some of it had already disappeared by this point. Rural areas were already seeing deforestation, early industrial development was taking place, and, you know, soon railroads up here would scar the landscape. But here, at the Catskill Mountain House, you could take in the vastness of nature. And remember that nature used to be seen as a dangerous thing. It was something to be conquered. But during these decades of the 1820s and 30s, there was this emerging philosophy that nature was now something special mm -hmm. to be cherished. It was, it was almost religious. Uh, but were American painters focusing on nature at this time, though? I mean, were there great landscape painters in the United States at this time? Not too many before the 1820s, uh, because there hadn't really been much of an art market for those works. Most artists at the time had patrons, and these patrons would mostly commission portraits or paintings of themselves and their families or even of their homes. But nothing like what's to come. Which brings us back to Thomas Cole... Um, who was born in Lancashire, England, in England's industrial north, in 1801, and he moved with his family to the U.S. in 1818. They then settled in Ohio, but the family's finances were never very stable, and Thomas left for Philadelphia when he was 22. He became an engraver. He tried portrait painting uh, before moving to New York in 1825, having decided to devote himself to landscape painting. I think this seems like a rather odd choice to make in the year 1825. Well, he didn't have much competition, and something about the landscapes really called him. He'd seen, you know, back in England, the, the natural landscapes ravaged by industry. But here in New York State, there was still so much that was untouched. And so in 1825... He traveled up to the Catskill Mountain House and spent time studying and sketching the landscapes, including the Catterskill Falls, and also along the lower Hudson Valley in, in Cold Springs. And then once back in New York, he produced paintings from these sketches, which he hung for sale in a bookstore window in lower Manhattan. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> Was it these paintings that launched his career? Yes, actually, they ended up catching the eyes of three VIPs of the 1820s art world, painter John Trumbull, Asher Durand, the city's most famous engraver, and theater producer William Dunlap. 
These men, they liked what they saw, they took Cole in, and they exhibited his works at the Academy of Fine Arts and really introduced him to their connections and to their patrons and, yeah, really got his career started. Now, later we'll be heading up to Cole's house in Catskill, New York, but when did he first move up there? Well, he went up to paint regularly in the late 1820s, And then he traveled to Europe for three years, from 1829 to 1832, studying the the masters of landscape painting. And then once back in the States, started staying up on a farm that was owned by the Thompson family in Catskill, New York, where he would paint, although he would also keep a studio in New York. But in 1836, he married Mariah Bartow, who was the niece of the owner of the farm, and moved on to their farm and started a family. And by this point, by the mid-1830s, he was a very successful and famous painter. Um, Yeah, in fact, by the 1830s and the 40s, he is the most famous landscape painter in the United States. Yeah, and one of the men who had helped discover him, Asher Durand, actually joined him then in this pursuit of capturing nature on canvas. With Cole's friendship here and his encouragement, Durand also started producing his own incredible landscapes during the 1830s. And so by the 1840s, Thomas Cole and Asher Durand were the two most famous landscape painters in the country. But there was a group of younger painters, you know, coming up the next generation. Right behind them, yeah, men who were, who were greatly inspired by their techniques and also by their writings on landscape paintings and the philosophy behind it. One of these men, the youngest, was Frederick Edwin Church, who was born in 1826 in Hartford, Connecticut. And in 1844, when he was just 18, he showed such promise that Thomas Cole took him in to study with him at his home and his studio in Catskill. And in 1848, Church was admitted into the National Academy of Design. He was the youngest associate that they had ever admitted. So 1848. And it's here that the story takes a rather shocking turn, because that year is when Thomas Cole, Church's mentor, died unexpectedly at age 47. Right. And it left Asher Durand initially as the leader of this group of landscape painters. And in the 1850s, Durand would publish Letters on Landscape Painting, which articulated the group's values and their standards. And he would also push for plein air painting. You know, he made his first sketches in oil paints outside on canvas and not in studio. It was revolutionary. And by the 1850s, this group of landscape painters then now included men like Frederick Church, but also John Kensett, Jasper Cropsey, and several others. But soon, it would be Frederick Church who would take over the helm and become the nation's most famous and successful painter. And he's different from the others in a very key way. He would travel far and wide, capturing the natural beauty of New England, the Andes in South America in the 1850s, and even the Arctic. Yeah, he saw he painted icebergs. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and yeah, and when upstate New York, his Niagara Falls, you know, nearly took you over mm-hmm. the falls with it. It's beautiful. Uh, his, his canvases were just so vast. They were a sensation. And he would take his paintings on tour 
he became so successful that in 1860, he purchased 126 acres of farmland just south of Hudson, New York, for his country home, land that would become part of Olana. And land that was located just across the Hudson River from the more modest country home of his late teacher, Thomas Cole. Now, Tom, I think before we head up to the homes of Thomas Cole and Frederick Church, I know your bags are packed, but I Mm -hmm. think we should bring out the canvas of the mind and give our (laughs) listeners a little idea of what the typical Hudson River school painting looks like. Okay, like let's paint a podcast picture here, a psychic panorama, if you will. All right, I've got my brush and my glass of wine here. Actually, it's a glass of throat coat tea. Um, But I already mentioned this concern for loss of natural beauty. The chief subject of a Hudson River School painting is, of course, the outside world. An outside natural world undisturbed by the influence of man, although sometimes not devoid of him. So let's just take, for example, the 1849 painting by Asher Durand called Kindred Spirits. The painting depicts the untouched wilderness of the Catskill Mountains. There's two rocky ledges on either side with a vast gorge with a waterfall and a creek. There are old tree husks in the foreground framing the image, and then a blanket of young, vibrant trees cascading into the background. And in the very distance, really omnipresent in many paintings of this period, are the Catskill Mountains. So it's a scene of absolute tranquility, untouched and unmanipulated by man. Except on that left ledge stands two men, just very insignificant in comparison to this vista. The two men happen to be Thomas Cole... Duran's friend and later mentor, and Mm -hmm. William Cullen Bryant, the poet and editor of the New York Evening Post. Bryant, of whom Brian Park is named, Mm -hmm. and and a longtime friend of Cole's. Bryant had given the eulogy at Cole's funeral uh, just the year before Duran painted this. In fact, Duran was commissioned to paint this as a gift to Bryant for this moving eulogy. Four years after this painting was made, Bryant took to his newspaper to advocate for a public park in New York. Now, we know what that park is. See the recent, mm-hmm. uh, see the recent Frederick Law Olmsted show for more information. But Bryant and the rest of the gang here were informed by ideas of transcendentalism, popularized by writers Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson that the natural world held a form of divinity. Thomas Cole himself actually said, quote, Amid these scenes of solitude, the mind is cast into the contemplation of eternal things, unquote. So the typical Hudson River School painting has several layers of natural imagery from foreground all the way to the background, but most are devoid of anything mechanical or built. Now, European landscape painters filled their works with historical dioramas. And while some Hudson School painters would go on to do that as well, most presented a romanticized view of what was essentially in their backyards. Well, that backyard, of course, being the Hudson River Valley, which also just happens to be one of the most beautiful areas of this new nation. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Although that is not to say that these paintings were looking at the natural world distantly, you know, as through a snow globe. There was like a little activism here, at least in the early years. I've even read the Hudson River School described as protest art, you know, all in Mm. response to American expansionism or what would come to be known as manifest destiny, the God-driven directive to spread its ideals into the wilderness. And it's also a little bit like the modern conservation movement. Thomas Cole could easily be considered an environmentalist. Now, later painters would complicate this narrative a little bit. And you could say that by the 1850s, artists were a bit more optimistic about American expansion, even celebrating it once you got to painters like Albert Bierstadt, who concentrated his work on the American West. But of course, to depict all of this, the canvas needed to be huge. They would have to overwhelm the viewer. You can't, after all, capture the sublime on a tiny canvas. So most of these paintings were epic. You could put like two or three Van Goghs into one of Frederick Church's epic paintings. You know, like Heart of the Andes, perhaps one of the most famous of the Hudson River School paintings, which is nearly 10 feet long and actually hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yes, it takes up nearly an entire wall. And today we're going to look more closely into the life of Frederick Church and the spectacular home that he built on the Hudson River. But first, we're going to pay a visit to the founder of what we now call the Hudson River School, Thomas Cole. We're headed to Catskill, New York, and his home, Cedar Grove, today known as the Thomas Cole National Historic Site. So, Tom, uh, pack up your paintbrushes and your canvases um, on top of everything else. We're going upstate after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. At Amica Insurance... 
we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by the New York Historical Society podcast for the ages. The New York Historical Society produces a must-listen-to podcast exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversations on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. Professor Frederick Logeval talks about JFK and the thing that surprised him the most— did JFK actually write Profiles in Courage? You'll find out what Logoval thinks. And he goes into detail about JFK's surprising defeat of Henry Cabot Lodge in 1952. In The Life and Legacy of Justice Ginsburg, Jeffrey Rosen talks about the many conversations he had with her over the years. He discusses the source of her empathy and her incredible attention to detail. Who was the most important person in her life? And what was behind her friendship with Justice Scalia? And you'll be surprised at the source of her exercise routine. Writer Walter Isaacson is interviewed about Jennifer Doudna in The Codebreaker. He'll take you on a fascinating adventure through the world of DNA and RNA and talk about discrimination against women in science and the pros and cons of using CRISPR. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. New episodes every week. Greg and I headed up to Catskill, about 100 miles north of New York City, on the west side of the Hudson, to visit the village's most famous landmark, the Thomas Cole National Historic Site. Three and a half acres, featuring the house known as Cedar Grove, and several other buildings, including a brightly colored gazebo, and two studio buildings where Cole once worked. It was inside Cole's old home that we met with the site's executive director, Betsy Jacks. Betsy, could you describe where we're sitting right now? We are inside the Thomas Cole house, but in this glorious room, of course, surrounded with beautiful Hudson River School paintings, but also in a sort of historical reproduction, right? Yes, this is a magical room. We have a view straight out the window to the west towards the Catskills, and it looks exactly like Thomas Cole painting. So this gives you a sense right away that this is the home of a landscape painter. Way up by the ceiling, you may notice that there is a painted border. And this was designed and painted by Thomas Cole. The guy painted on the walls and he, nobody wait, knew he painted this. this wallpaper? This, it's, and actually, it's, it looks like wallpaper, but it's on the plaster. He painted right onto the plaster of the wall. So not only did Thomas Cole paint the walls, but he also painted the paintings that are hanging on the walls in this room. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Originally, when Cole lived here, he would paint things, put them up, rotate them. He'd have patrons come and look here, visit occasionally, etc. We think that he basically did this 
painted border as a frame for the paintings, you know, sort of a way to set them off and make it look really fancy in here. But then over the years, you know, Thomas Cole died young. He was only 47. And he had all these young children and his family had no other means of support, plus his in-laws. And there was this whole extended family he was supporting. Anyway, long story short, they needed money. So they started selling everything paintings, land, etc. So the paintings that were covering the walls of this particular room are now in museums all over the country. So we needed to put this parlor back into some kind of state that said, this is Thomas Cole's parlor. I mean, we had it without paintings for a while, and it just, it just didn't look right. So what we've done is we took the old photographs of the room and figured out what was where, and we reproduced the paintings and put reproductions on the walls of this room so that it would look like Thomas Cole's parlor. Mm. And then upstairs in the house, we have original paintings. But these paintings... We're never getting them back. You know, this one's at MFA Boston. That one's at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So, you know, unless they're going to give them back to us, right? That's not going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen either. Let's talk a little bit about this house itself, like this spot. I mean, it really is like a part of his, the inspiration of his art because it's in the part and parcel of the love that he found for this region. It was like, also, this was sort of a little home base for him, right? Oh, it completely made his art possible. I mean, before that, he was painting in a little attic's unheated space in New York City, and he, he was ill, and it was freezing, and it was really not very suitable to have an art career. It was tough. Sounds so this, very La Boheme. Right? Right. I know, very romantic, but not really so comfortable. So he got this place to live, which it had a really full household. It, it had between 11 and 14 people living here during Cole's time. So all kinds of people. His wife had three sisters who could help care for the children. They really wanted to build a house of their own, but they could never scrape together the money to do it. So for that 10 years though, that he's back in New York, he would come up here and do sketches and then go back and paint it in the studio? That's what he was doing for the first decade of his career, was mm-hmm. that he was up here in the summer when the, and the fall and just gather as much material as he could. He would do oil sketches outside in nature. He would hike straight west into those mountains, spend the night there, and then wake up at the sunrise and capture the sunrise views. And it was just this glorious, I would like to do that myself. It's like he was absorbing the beauty of the region, imprinting it in his brain, mm-hmm. and then taking it back to New York and painting it in his little studio there. That's so yeah, interesting. That's exactly what he did. And he said, I can never paint scenes, no matter how beautiful, directly upon returning from them. He says, I have to wait for time to draw a veil over the details to leave the dominant parts, you know, the the most important parts dominant in the mind. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. But he, he was basically saying, like, it takes a little distance from the view to make it really gel into a painting for him. And he was really discovered in the 1820s in New York by Asher Durand and others who happened to notice his painting in the window of a gallery yeah. space. But what was it that made these three stop in their tracks mm. when they looked at him? What, what, was it, what quality did he have as a painter that other landscape painters didn't have before him? Well, that is the million-dollar question. So 
that people in New York at the time, like Asher Duran, John Trumbull, there were these, you know, established artists. Yes, right? The sort of cultural elite, if you will. They wanted to have something to boast about from their new country. You know, this is this is a pretty new country at that point. Mm-hmm. And they want to show that we don't need the old world. We've got our own great homegrown stuff here. So they saw Thomas Cole's paintings of American landscapes. And they were like nothing in Europe. Because the American landscapes that Thomas Cole was painting looked like no humans had ever set foot on them. I mean, they were just dead trees and deer running around. And of course, this was a complete fiction. There were lots of people that were living here. Thomas Cole depicted in a way that spoke of this untouched wilderness that God had created and no humans had messed it up. And they thought, this is what our country is all about. It's America the Beautiful. Were there religious or spiritual components to his art as well? Or was this perhaps something just more of a secular urge for him? Well, it it was kind of all wrapped up in, in both. Thomas Cole was deeply religious, and he felt that the study of nature was a way to get at something spiritual. And for him, it was because nature was the creation from something divine, right? So God had made this beautiful world. To, to heal your soul, he felt that you needed to spend time in nature. But at the same time, Thomas Cole was different from the other artists at that time, too, because he had a more, shall we say, pessimistic view of things. He started noticing that the landscapes here were changing really fast. He saw railroads coming through and just clear-cutting groves that were 200 years old. And he saw the whole tanning industry come in here and clear-cut the Catskill Mountains, clear-cut all of these beautiful trees and just take off the bark and use the bark for tanning of leather. So it was a tremendously destructive time for someone who wanted to paint pristine nature. And he felt like, oh no, the Industrial Revolution is coming to America. Mm -hmm. He grew up in England and had lived right in the center of, the, the kind of epicenter really of the Industrial Revolution there and saw the devastation of the landscape. And so here he thought, well, this is untouched and beautiful, and then it was happening all over again. But it seems like he, he didn't decide to put those in his paintings. I'm pointing to one here on the wall of reproduction where you don't really see mm-hmm. any evidence, right, of the railroads or people logging or uh, taking bark from trees. That's correct. This is, a, this is hopeful or this is, what Nos- is this? I would call it nostalgic. By the time he was painting this view that you just described that has no sign of industry in it, it was already a memory. And he's painting it as such, and he describes it as a memory so that people would know what it once looked like. So very wrapped up in Thomas Cole's art is this sense of nostalgia for things recently lost. And part of that is the beauty of the landscape that was all around here. So he's also issuing a kind of a warning that he hopes that the citizens of this new country will value the beauty of nature and be more appreciative and protect it. One other thing about the painting that we're referring to, it's huge. His, his paintings, not all, 
but so many of his paintings and then of the other Hudson River School painters painted these enormous canvases. And who could even afford to buy those? Because the economy, right, for the painters is different in the U.S. than back in Europe. We didn't really have royalty to buy it. That's true. Thomas Gold did find some great patrons here, and that's also what enabled him to have this career. There wasn't really an art market, if you will. It's not like you had galleries that people could just go to and pick something off the wall. It didn't really work that way. So Thomas Cole would try to find someone to sponsor him in advance to do a painting. And that way he wouldn't be at risk and spending hours of his own time and expense of the materials and with then no source of income for that all that work. So instead he found these patrons. They varied in how lenient they were about what he would paint for them. You know, somebody had this dream patron, Lumen Reed, who just said, paint your dream for me, paint whatever you want, you know, and it was just fantastic, right? And then he had this other patron, Robert Gilmore, who was this aristocrat, and he was very particular about what he felt that he was the expert on culture. And so he would be very particular about, so anyway, we have produced in this room, in this parlor, uh, we've reproduced these conversations that Cole had with these patrons, and we call them hidden stories. So as you walk around the room, a motion detector picks up your approach. Oh. And, yes, and it's very magical. So on the tables are what look like just plain pieces of paper. Mm-hmm. But as you approach them, the conversation comes out of the letters and you see back and forth this conversation between Cole and his patrons um, happening that we pulled out of the letters. You'll have to just see it for yourself. Wow. <laughs> The house actually employs several technological marvels as part of its exhibition, multimedia displays and clever video projections that bring Cole's paintings to life. However, upstairs, Betsy led us into a sitting room that had its own novel kind of special effects. Wow, this is some almost psychedelic um, A really quite daring wallpaper for the period. It's like a leaf print, but with kind of a day glow green behind it. It's amazing. This is a wallpaper that blends this kind of almost acid green Mm -hmm. into a sort of a lavender in a what's called a moiré effect, which is supposed to look like silk. So it's supposed to be very opulent. And when he moved into this house... So it was built in 1815, and he moved in in 1836. So you can imagine, 20-some-odd years later, the decor looked very out of style to him, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. something 20 years ago, we'd be like, oh, no, you know, let's take that out. So he completely redesigned the interiors and said, let's update this place and make it fashionable. So he had a hand in picking all the colors and the carpets and the wallpaper. And as we saw downstairs, he actually painted onto the walls. Wow. And what was this room? This was his sitting room. So you have to realize he moved in with his in-laws. So his (laughs) wife's family lived here. And, you know, they wanted a little space of their own. So this became the Cole family sitting room, kind of the center of their family life, whereas the parlor downstairs was his wife's family's sitting room. So they kind of have a suite of rooms up here, but it was a pretty crowded house. It looks nice and gracious for one family, but if you have 14 people living in here, it could get a little cramped. A lot. <laughs> a lot of people. Well, so if it was so crowded then, where was he even painting on the property? 
Well, after he moved in, the room that adjoins this one right here was his studio for a short time. So here on the second floor of the house was a small room, and this was his temporary studio. But pretty soon, he had kids running around, and it got a little noisy and crowded and hard to focus, as anyone who has kids might attest. Mm -hmm. So he moved his painting operation into a barn that was being constructed on the property. And that's the, what we call the old studio, which is the white barn out there on the property. Uh, can we go visit? Oh, yeah. Well, we did head outside, intending to go right to Thomas Cole's studio, but it's impossible not to stop on that wide, expansive porch, offering that stunning view of the Catskill Mountains that Cole would spend his life immortalizing. All right. The view from the porch is just, I mean, it really is like you're looking at one of his paintings. It absolutely is. And today we have the scent of lilacs and apple blossoms. It's just heaven. And that's interesting that he was, you were saying, nostalgic about how the landscape was changing. Mm -hmm. But nearly, what, 200 years later, or 185 or whatever years later, we can still see that same landscape. What has kept its beauty intact? It's a complicated story. So first in Thomas Cole's time, the view that he loved changed dramatically and trees were just being clear-cut and it would not have looked this natural smokestacks you know lots of stuff happening out here so then all that industry faded away over time and it became a residential area and then fortunately for all of us in the 20th century all that in the Catskills was preserved as part of Catskill Park. So there's a clause in the New York State Constitution that specifies it be forever wild. Oh. So this kind of legal protection of land didn't exist in Thomas Cole's time. He had no idea that that was even possible. But he, I think, would have been really gratified that we have preserved so much of this incredibly gorgeous land. Now, anybody can go hiking there and see the views that he saw, which are actually better preserved today than in his time. So it's not an exaggeration to say that the landscape today looks more like a Thomas Cole painting than when he actually lived here and painted Ironically, it. yes. He would have loved that it actually turned out the way he painted it. <laughs> Life imitates art, I guess, maybe in this case. <laughs> it really um, is. And speaking of art, why don't we head over to the studio and see where he crafted some of these great paintings. Yes, um, there's the old studio and the new studio. So we have a campus here <laughs> of three main buildings. The building known as the new studio, a reconstruction built in 2016, perfectly captures Cole's work environment in his final years. And today features an art gallery for Hudson River School paintings. But we headed to his old barn studio, an otherwise modest room that was dominated by a large, high window. We are seeing really a sort of glorious depiction of what an artist's studio is like with a beautiful, gigantic canvas, a sort of um, a replica of his paints and his sort of workroom. But the room itself is really exceptional too. There's a gorgeous fireplace and these really high, beautiful windows. When this building was being built, he went to his father-in-law, who owned the property, and said, 
could I have a little bit of this building for a painting room? You know, he thought it would be temporary. I mean, it's in a barn, right? That's not Mm -hmm. really fitting of a man of his stature and accomplishment, right? He wanted something fancy. But for the moment, while he got his money together, he took this room in the storehouse studio, it was called, Mm -hmm. and put in this big north window to provide enough light for his art. And as you can see, we have here his original easels. And we reproduced one of this monumental series that he produced in here called The Voyage of Life. Those paintings were huge, and he had four of them going. So you can imagine it was a little cramped after Mm -hmm. all that. And this is a landscape. Um, It's got that kind of ominous dark cloud at the top, and there's, it seems like, is that an angel at the front of a, or the back of a boat coming out of a cave? That is exactly what that is. Yeah, so... Allegorical, I'm taking Allegorical. That's the word. He said, I am not a mere leaf painter. He -hmm. didn't want to just paint leaves and have it be a pretty picture. He thought that art had a very important purpose to tell stories and to impart knowledge. So this was part of what went into this series called The Voyage of Life. The first one we have here on the easel has the little baby, you see, in the boat. So this is the beginning. Oh, there's a baby, too. Yeah, there's oh. a, this is the beginning of the story. <laughs> and the baby is just coming out, well, it's very also metaphorical. He's coming out of a cave. Mm-hmm. And then he is in this landscape with flowers and sunshine. sunshine. <laughs> and oh, the beginning of life is great. Mm-hmm. And then their next couple of paintings, which you can see on this board. Know, things take things dark turn yeah things don't go so well so in what he calls manhood when the guy's all grown up the boat is battered to pieces he's about to go over this rocky gorge waterfall thing it's just not looking great so and this is the age he was when he painted the series so in in 1840 not knowing of course that he only had eight more years of his own life right how did he die he died so young It's been theorized that he damaged his lungs growing up in the Industrial Revolution in England in the middle of all that coal dust and that he had for his whole life these damaged lungs. So when he was in his 40s, you know, they heated their homes with very smoky coal and stuff as well, that one February he just it overcame him. He, they say he had pneumonia, but he was fine for church on Sunday, and he was dead not before the end of that week. So it was very quick. It was tragic because he had all these young children, and his wife was actually pregnant with his last child when Thomas Cole died. And, and what a blow to the entire landscape school, really. I mean, it, it, he had disciples by this point in 1848, right? He had been, he had taken church under his wing. Thomas Cole was very fortunate in that he had a great student. Frederick Church came here when he was just a teenager and wrote this beautiful, humble letter saying, I would work so hard and do my very best if I could just be your student. He really, really wanted to work with Cole, who was the acknowledged master. And so they did. They worked here together for about a year and a half, two years. And not too long after that, Thomas Cole died. And so Church, Frederick Church was stunned that his mentor had passed away and had left this young family and didn't have any money. And so he, he 
rushed in and helped the family and put on this huge memorial exhibition of Cole's paintings and really befriended and nurtured the family ever since. Well, we're fortunate that we can go from this historic site to uh, Frederick Church, and there's even a path that connects Thomas Cole's house to Frederick Church's Olana. Yes, you could do something now that they couldn't do then, which is to walk between the sites. You can walk right over the Hudson River. Of course, the bridge was not here in their time, but it is an unbelievable view from there. And we call it the Skywalk because it's so high up in the air, you feel like you're in the sky. Amazing. I'm sure he would have been up there sketching. (laughs) (laughs) He would have loved it. Well, Betsy, thank you for walking us through the history of Thomas Cole and walking us through this extraordinary site. I cannot wait to get out there and wander around it's so beautiful. Yes, this is such a magical part of the world. I feel very lucky to live here. (laughs) Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Greg and I got in the car and crossed the Hudson River over the Rip Van Winkle Bridge to its eastern shore and followed a winding path up a mountain to the Olana State Historic Site, topped by the home of Frederick Church and his family. Outside the house, we met up with the director of the Olana State Historic Site, Amy Hausman, who led us along a forest path through Church's spectacular estate. Thank you for joining us, Amy. Thank you so much for coming. We have the most beautiful day at Olana. I don't mm-hmm. think it could be a better day. Mm-hmm. And we are in the in some of the woods. We're on a carriage road here at Olana. Olana is a 250-acre earthwork or landscape that was designed by the artist Frederick Church. And we are on one of a series of carriage roads that he designed. There are five miles of carriage roads here at Olana that you can walk every day. So we just came from the Thomas Cole historic site, which, of course, you know, he did not design that site. In fact, it was a house that he bought. But of course, it was situated near the beauty of the Catskill Mountains. Well, it seems like Frederick Church went one better. And of course, also situated it in beautiful area and then created his own area around it that sort of reflected his own art. Yes, that is true. And there's a really interesting backstory, I think, to that. This land where we are is a very ancient land, and it overlooks a river. We now call that river the Hudson River, but of course it was called the Mohicantuck River by the first peoples who lived here, the Mohican people. They lived here for thousands of years before colonists came to settle this place. And if you kind of fast forward into the 19th century, uh, Thomas Cole comes to this river valley. And in 1845, he agrees to work with a young art student, an 18-year-old art student named Frederick Edwin Church, who comes from Hartford, Connecticut. And he and Church tramp around all of the great northern Catskills and here at this property where we are right now. And they sketch and they draw, and Church is really inspired by the landscape. So as an adult, in 1860, he returns to this place just three months before his wedding, and he buys the first 126 acres of this property down towards the base of the hill that we're on right now. And he starts to create what he calls the farm with his wife, Isabel Carnes. And we were speaking with Betsy about what kind of happened after Thomas Cole passed. He was already positioned to carry the baton forward with Asher Durand. Well, Frederick Church is a very is kind of a prodigy, young student when he comes to study with Thomas Cole. He's Thomas Cole's only student, as far as mm-hmm. I believe. And uh, he studies with him for two years. And he leaves in 1847 
Wow. A year before um, Thomas Cole dies of pneumonia, untimely death. But Church continues to stay close to the Cole family. And in fact, they are positioned on um, two different sides of the river, the east and the west side. Of, right, we're on the east of, side. We're on the east side now in Columbia County. But right across the river is Thomas Cole's house. And so he positions his house here at the top of the hill to look out on his master's house. He also collects some of Thomas Cole's work, and we'll see that when we're inside the main house here. But by the time he bought the land, though, he was actually a very successful painter, right, by that point? Absolutely, yes. In fact, he leaves Thomas Cole in 1847, and he goes to New York City, and in the subsequent 10 to 15 years, becomes the most famous artist in the United States. And he travels around the world, he travels widely through South America, he travels up to Labrador and Newfoundland, and creating work that becomes renowned uh, around the world. And I just have to say, we're talking about this as we continue on a gravel path um, that really does make it feel like we're walking through one of his massive canvases. Excellent. That's exactly what he wanted you to think. <laughs> so I think that's perfect because he really wants you to have the feeling, the experience that you're walking through one of his paintings. By the time he comes here in 1860, um, he's looking for a respite from the fame that he finds in New York City. So he's going back and forth between a studio that he has here at Olana and his studio in the city. He, in fact, likes to look at his work in the light at both studios. And so this property, as I mentioned, this hill, this was our farmland when he bought it. And there were almost no trees when he purchased it. Really? I mean, it feels like we're walking through a forest. We are walking through a forest, through a beautiful woodland. And it's a woodland that is created by the vision of Frederick Church. He talks about planting thousands and thousands of trees in the early years that he's here at this place at Olana. So a lot of this landscape is landscape that he is creating creating these five miles of carriage roads, the views that we see. There's this idea of a kind of a peak and reveal. As we're walking along, you can kind of see these are very sinuous curves and they kind of go along and then all of a sudden it opens up to Oop. a vista. There's right? a little bit of the Hudson River. There's a little bit right there. We'll see another vista when we come up and you should be recording because you're going to say, <gasps> <laughs> so let's go. Whoa. Are we walking into a gigantic painting? Are we? Am I going to like hit myself on the face by a wall? Is this all an illusion? No, we're walking out onto the side of the hill with a view down over the Hudson River, the Rip Van Winkle Bridge in front of us, and of course the Catskill Mountains in this kind of like light lavender color because they're so far away. I mean, it really does. It, it is a piece of art. But if he's already training with Thomas Cole in, in 1845, he has a very quick rise, right, in the art world throughout the 1850s. Yeah, it's a meteoric rise, and which is a funny pun if you're a church scholar because he famously paints a beautiful meteor. Um, <laughs> but um, he, you know, he is a very talented artist and really an incredible mark in American art history because he is one of the first born American artists. Thomas Cole is born in England. He comes right. here. Frederick Church is born and born and raised here in Hartford, Connecticut, and he really is becomes an art star in, in our in our current day parlance. You know, he travels around a lot as a young man and he follows in the footsteps of the naturalist Alexander von Humboldt, who's someone that many Americans don't know much about, but who was extraordinarily influential in his lifetime. And Alexander von Humboldt is the first naturalist who brought this theory of interconnectivity 
of nature. Interconnectedness is something that Church really grasps onto and thinks about as he's creating paintings. And we see that as he's traveling around South America. Specifically, he takes a book written by Alexander von Humboldt called Cosmos, which was a bestseller of the time. And he uses that almost as a guidebook in some ways to travel and retrace von Humboldt's steps. He makes paintings that are uh, from those trips in South America, and they become very well-known paintings, the heart of the Andes being one of them. And it's probably worth just talking about that painting for a moment because it is so notable just in so many respects, including like the detail that he goes into right down to what kind of tree, right, he was painting? Absolutely. And in fact, the the detail, which is what von Humboldt would call the biogeography, Mm. isn't that a great word? And the biogeography is kind of really focused on the biodiversity of each level of altitude, you know, and and how (laughs) things really change. And so, yes, you can go into that painting. And there are stories that I've read that talk about the fact that people would line up to see some of Church's paintings. You would pay 25 cents to Mm -hmm. see it work. And he would show that work um, in front of, you know, with potted palms and and a velvet curtain. People would look through opera glasses and faint dead away because of the incredible detail that people would see in the paintings. And didn't he even build a frame around it to make it kind of look like a window? Yes. Like they were actually looking exactly. out, looking onto, out that onto that landscape. And you know, you think about the fact that in that time in the 19th century, photography was just coming in. This was a way for people to have a glimpse of landscape that they couldn't necessarily see otherwise. It's very much like an IMAX, right? An IMAX experience. It's exact- immersive. It's immersive. immersive. <laughs> well, so then I will ask you to think about where we're sitting right now. Mm -hmm. This is the penultimate (laughs) IMAX experience, right? Yeah, it's like 4D. It's 4D. I can smell it. I've got my, I'm congested. I've got allergies. I know. Well, you actually have the experience of being inside one of those paintings. And that is Church's genius and Church's goal of creating Olana. And there are these elements of it that are man-made and created It isn't until 1870 that he begins construction of what we call the main house at Olana. And the main house begins construction in 1870 and is completed a few years later. They move in in 1872. And he didn't design the house, did he? Or did he have help? building the house? So Frederick Church has an initial plan when he buys the 18 acres at the top of this hill to build a big house. He's looking to work with architect Richard Morris Hunt, Mm -hmm. who helped him build Cozy Cottage, his farmhouse. And they have an idea of building a kind of a French-style chateau. So then Frederick Church and his wife, Isabel, and their young child go on a trip to Europe and to the Middle East. And during that extensive trip of travel, they are wholly and fully inspired by what they see. And when they return, they decide they're going to change tax and build a different style house. Some of the massing of the house remains in place, but the detail, the ornamentation, many of the elements are are wholly different. And so Church then enlists a friend, and that is Calvert Vox, who of course worked with Frederick Law Olmsted on Central Mm -hmm. Park and um, other amazing projects, Prospect Park, of course. And so Calvert Vox and Frederick Church work together. Vox providing a lot of the detail, mechanical, architectural mm-hmm. needs, and Church really providing this incredible vision. So, wow. So he goes from 
Richard Morris Hunt to Calvert Fox. I mean, it's he really fascinating, he right? had a great Rolodex. You know? He was a, such a man. He was uh, one of the founders of the Metropolitan Museum. Mm-hmm. He served for a brief time, a year and a half, as a commissioner for Central Park. Mm-hmm. Frederick Law Olmsted was a distant cousin of his, also from Connecticut, oh, of course, yeah. from Connecticut, uh-huh. in fact. Um, and so the, the role that, that Church plays at Niagara, at Central Park, there is a connection there, of course, with Frederick Law Olmsted, which I know you've talked a lot about, <laughs> too. Yes. But, you know, he is at heart an artist. He was a commissioner of Central Park, a wonderful, esteemable position, but he didn't really like it. He want, he didn't love the patronage and everything that came around with that. I like to think he wanted to be doing this. He wanted to be what he called landscape architecturing, building <laughs> Olana, working in his studio. He was an artist at heart, and that was the focus of his life. And this, in this house, then, went from French Chateau to something kind of Moorish. Yes. Well, let's go look and see what you think it looks like. Tom and I found it quite difficult to put into words the unconventional architectural styles of this house on top of the hill. Fortunately, along our walk, we ran into Daniel Bigler, a historic site assistant here at the Alana State Historic Site, who's had a lot more experience in describing it. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Greg and I were just wondering, stumbling over our own descriptions, trying to figure out how to describe the look of the building here. It's actually something even Frederick Church himself wavered on a few times. Um, Probably the most famous quote by him about it is Persian adapted to the Occident, adapted to Western styles. But there is another letter where he's saying that it's Persian and Moorish, but not one more than the other. Actually, if you think why all of the uh, Moorish or Persian elements, what you're kind of left with is basically an Italian villa-style house with the tower on the corner. We also have the mansard roof, the basic oh, yeah. roof shape from the Second Empire French style. <laughs> so, It's a yeah, mashup. It is. Why don't you come in? I'll show you a couple of rooms. Let's go. Now, Amy had referred to this house as a viewing instrument of the Hudson Valley. And that becomes very obvious the moment you step through the doors. Dan is opening the door and we're heading inside. Wow. One thing I always like to point out when people first come into the house is this straight shot right through the entire building. It's uh, designed so that you can see through the uh, court hall, which is probably one of the rooms we'll take a look at, uh, the library, and then all the way through a new wing that Church added almost 20 years after the main block of the house was built, and then through the window to the other side of the Hudson River. Yeah, you can essentially see all the way through the house, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. like in literally. All <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So as you come in through the front door, uh, you can see the dining room slash picture gallery to the right. But if you were a visitor in church's time, the door to that probably would have been closed and you would have been led by one of the serving staff members into the room on the left, which is the east parlor. Can we head in there? Sure. The east parlor, we just step in and it's uh, unsurprisingly dominated by... Windows with a spectacular view. Exactly. The uh, the house itself is not aligned exactly north and south, but instead to the particular views that Church wanted his visitors to see as they experienced each room like we are. This is probably the most famous view from the hilltop, uh, looking slightly southwest towards Inbok Bay, this wide section of the Hudson River straight ahead of us. 
And down to the left, you can see the lake that Church had dug on the property uh, during about a 20-year span. That lake was dug in such a shape that it would echo the shape of the river at that widest section when you view it from up here. Wow. And hanging on the walls are... I think about two dozen paintings are these are these are all originals these are all originals yes and uh in this room church kind of showcased both his own work as well as artworks by people he was connected to uh so we actually have two paintings by his teacher thomas cole uh right up here there's a small study of a south american mountain scene uh, that's a preparatory study for arguably then and arguably now his most famous work, The Heart of the Andes, which is a 10 by 6 foot canvas at the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. And I do think it's touching that, you know, in this room, he's sharing the walls with his mentor and, you know, and then sharing those views with the actual view that they both painted so often in their lives. By the time Church moves into this house, what's going on with his career? And in fact, what's happening with the Hudson River School in general, or those, those artists who are associated with the school? Yeah, by the time they moved up here in 1872 to the main house, his career was already starting to enter its end period. Newer artistic styles like Impressionism had started to become popular in the United States, especially after the Civil War. Photography was coming into its own as uh, not only a documentary, but an artistic medium unto itself. And the Hudson River School style that had had a good run of about 40 years at that point um, was starting to be seen as kind of outdated. So his uh, last major work is usually considered to be Morning in the Tropics of 1877, painted a few years after they moved into the house. Also significant is that Church was suffering with rheumatoid arthritis, which mm. seems to have started in his right hand and finger joints, uh, certainly later would not only affect his mobility, but his ability to paint. So by the late 1870s, then not only is his career sort of at its twilight and fading. Mm -hmm. So is the entire school of Hudson River School of Painting. Yeah, there's a few exceptions like George Innes, who did continue to remain popular by kind of adapting elements of uh, European art. But overall, the Hudson River School was losing favor by that point. Church's career changed tax and changed direction. He started focusing his work on creating this landscape. Mm. He continues to be an artist till the very end of his life, till he dies in 1900. He changes and starts focusing his attention on creating a landscape and, in fact, says that he can do more with the landscape than he can with tampering with canvas and paint. So I think that's a really important part of the way that we think about Frederick Church. He continues to be an artist. He continues to make work. And his greatest masterwork is this estate, which we call Olana. It's really his last great work. It's his last great work, yeah. We said goodbye to Dan and this curious house, and Amy then walked us back outside, overlooking yet another captivating view, which seemed to extend for miles. We are currently walking along the approach road to the main house here at the very top of the hill, and this approach road is the way that visitors who were coming to visit the church family would have moved through the landscape. So they would have walked along here. They would have seen this beautiful mingled garden, which is off to the left, mm -hmm. um, hidden behind this retaining wall. And then as the visitor ascends this hill, they look out and they see the incredible landscape that is before them. 
Off to the right, you see a man-made lake. This is a lake that was a little valley with a, a stream that uh, church dammed up. And over the course of 20 years, it was mucked out to create this incredible lake. And much of the muck, some of the muck was used to recontour the land. Some of it was sold to local farmers. And it has a beautiful view at the far end of the lake. There are, pa- there are carriage roads around the lake, but there's a beautiful view at the far end of the lake where you can see the house reflected in the water, which is incredible. Wow. So when people come up, I mean, it isn't obviously just to visit the house because there's so much to hike and explore. How, how much time should people give themselves? We'd love for people to come for the, for the whole day if they can. There are five miles of carriage roads to walk and explore around the lake, up to Crown Hill, out on Ridge Road. There's a beautiful connection to the Hudson River Skywalk, which connects our site, Olana State Historic Site, with the Thomas Cole National Historic Site across the river. That is a three mile each way trip and a really wonderful way to see both historic sites in this area. So give yourselves plenty of time and comfy walking shoes. Absolutely. And if you're coming to Olana, we are open every day of the year. It's the, the, Every day. We are open every single day of the year, no matter the weather. If you are interested in taking tours or participating in any programs, we have a wonderful not-for-profit organization called the Olana Partnership who offers those. And more information and tickets are available at the website olana.org. Amy Hausman, thanks for introducing us to Paradise. Oh. And thanks for <laughs> inviting us to the Alana State Historic Site. Thank you for being on the show. Yes, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Please come back. We can't wait to have you here again. What a whirlwind artistic adventure mm-hmm. we just had, Greg. <laughs> Today, you can find great examples of paintings from the Hudson River School in New York at various museums, in particular, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, as well as the New York Historical Society. Although its collection is currently out on tour, you can still view the the paintings on their website. There are also great examples of these paintings at the Thomas Cole National Historic Site and the Olana State Historic Site. And you can also virtually visit some of these paintings by checking out our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll also have images of our trip to Catskill and Hudson. I actually enjoyed producing this show so much that I just chose to stick around the area for a few days. Actually got a nice little Airbnb in Catskill and, you know, got to really fall in love with this region. I actually want to give a shout out to Whitecliffe Vineyard and Winery which is located on a 19th century farm property in sight of Alana. In fact, the road from Alana down to the ferry at the shoreline once ran through here. So anyway, you can sit here, you can soak in the Alana views and fields of grapevines and apple orchards, you know, while sipping on a crisp Chardonnay. I take it you did that often just to make sure that you could. That is a that is a lived experience. <laughs> that is a picture a Hudson River School painting of me would have depicted that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And of course, the historic towns of Hudson and Catskill are filled with things to do. We'd like to thank Betsy Jacks of the Thomas Cole National Historic Site and Amy Hausman and Dan Bigler of the Olana State Historic Site for helping us paint the picture of the Hudson River School today. You can visit their websites, thomascole.org and olana, that's O-L-A-N-A, dot org for information about visiting, special events, and more. 
we want to give a big thanks to our patrons for helping us plan out these three episodes of our road trip miniseries. Join us on patreon.com slash Boys, where your small monthly contribution helps us produce the show. And a very special thanks to brand new patrons, Julie H. from Brooklyn, and additional patrons Martin G., Christine H., Jesse M., Drew Y., Tammy F., Lori Z., James H., and Alan R. Thank you, patrons. And also be sure to swing over to BoweryBoysWalks.com, where you can check out our new walking tours of Gilded Age New York, Tribeca, Lower East Side, and more. That's BoweryBoysWalks.com. Finally, check out the latest episodes of The Gilded Gentleman, the spin-off podcast by Carl Raymond, produced by Bowery Boys Media. He also, coincidentally, has an art-themed show on deck, featuring the tale of American Impressionist painter Mary Rogers Williams. Very fascinating story, and Carl is joined on that show by historian Eve Kahn, the former antiques colonist for the New York Times. So you can find his show, The Gilded Gentleman, wherever you find your podcasts. Well, it's time for us to head back home, Greg. All road trips must come to an end, but it will not be our last. And we want to thank you, listener, for joining us on this epic three-part Hudson Valley adventure. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.